Good morning. I'm not sure what it is, but our sanctuary seems to be fuller this morning. Oh, Thanksgiving. Okay. That explains that. We had a great Thanksgiving, and I pray that the Lord blessed you and your family and your get-togethers. If you would like a Bible to open up as we go through God's Word, we're starting a new book today. Hebrews, and it's, like I say with every other book that I start, it's becoming one of my favorites. If you want a Bible, hold your hand up. We've got them, there we go. In the middle, hold the hand up. Good. And if you need to take that Bible home and use it during the week, feel free to do that. It's yours. So as we look at Hebrews, just a little bit of an introduction to get us started. It was written to Jewish believers in Jesus. They were struggling. They were being pressured. There's like thousands, a couple thousand years of tradition and custom, sacrifices, laws, regulations, rituals. At this time, the temple's still standing, going strong. There's sacrifices being offered, feast days. Religion of Judaism was at its height. Jewish friends and family who didn't believe in Jesus, they were beginning to scoff out loud, well, you crazy Christians, what are you thinking? You can't leave behind the security of our ancient laws and rules and regulations and customs. And this is part of our family. This is who we are. This is what we do as Jewish people. You got this no-name preacher from Galilee. He was crucified. What are you thinking? And the pressure was really beginning to mount. In fact, some of the Hebrew believers were banished from their families. Their land and property was confiscated. They were excommunicated from the life of being a Jew. And some of them were even imprisoned and martyred. There was this crazy zealot named Saul. And he was on the loose and he was hunting them down and he was even heading away from Jerusalem. He was going to Damascus to find Christians and to put them in jail and some of them to be martyred. And on the way, Jesus stopped him in his tracks. And he met Jesus and the glory of the risen Lord face to face on the road to Damascus. And so Paul gets to Damascus, the Lord fills him with his spirit, and he begins to preach and teach about this Jesus who wasn't just crucified and for our sins on the cross and washing away our sins, the ultimate sacrifice, but he says, Jesus is alive and I've met him. And even though the heat was on and Saul is proving that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, actually it just made things worse. 
Look at Acts chapter 9, verse 22 and following. His preaching became more and more powerful, and the Jews in Damascus, they couldn't refute his proofs that Jesus was indeed Messiah, and what did they do? Their response, we got to just take this guy out. We've got to kill Saul. So the theme of Hebrews, and I believe, and we'll get to this a little bit later, that, that Paul is the writer. Jesus is better. He's talking about all of the Jewish customs, the temple, the sacrifices. He says in the Old Testament, all of that was just a pattern that pointed to Jesus. And that's what Hebrews is all about. It's to strengthen the teetering faith of Jewish believers that were following Jesus as their Messiah. Hebrews explains how Jesus is vastly better than everything in Judaism. The Old Testament prophets, he's better. The angels, he's better. The law, he's better. Moses, he's better. Joshua, he's better. Jewish priesthood, well, he's the one and only high priest. He's better. He works at a better temple, makes better promises, establishes a better covenant, offers a vastly better sacrifice that doesn't just cover their sins, but washes away their sins by the blood of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. So the Hebrews, and to all of us, we need to know that Jesus is better. Be proud of Jesus. Don't ever look down because of any pressure that this world or any other religion might bring or attack you with. Fiercely hold on to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So, who in the world at this time would have been brave enough to write the book of Hebrews with all the pressure coming down? Scholars have argued, well, we think it's Timothy. No, I think it's Philip. No, Barnabas. Oh, probably Apollos. He was, he was quite an orator. Some even say Aquila and Priscilla. But Peter speaks of Paul, Saul, who later became named Paul, writing to Jewish Christians in 2 Peter 3.15, and, and many believe that Paul's writing must have been this book, the letter to Hebrews that we're looking at. And that's my guess as well. Even in this first chapter, there's some of the things that come out that just kind of Paul has shared with others in other letters. Why didn't he start the letter like all the rest of the letters that he wrote? Paul the Apostle? Well, think about it. If Paul would have started with his name, the Jewish community was so up in arms about his proofing that Jesus was Messiah, they would have never read this 
letter. Even the Christian followers, Jewish followers, had problems with Paul because of his love for Gentiles. They didn't quite understand that. But whether Paul wrote this book or not, the truth is, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed. Ultimately, the most important author was God. In fact, as you open your Bibles and you look at Hebrews, verse 1, it begins, God. Understand, here's the most fundamental fact in the universe, God is. The symmetry and the order seen in our universe, why it testifies of a creator, a designer. You don't get order and symmetry from randomness and chance, no matter what this world tries to say. Romans 1.20 puts it this way, for since the creation of the world His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Who's without excuse? Those that are trying to tell us, oh no, it just happened from nothing. And here we have all that we have in this Creation. Pastor Sandy Adams talks about this as he goes through this chapter. And he says, you know, it's just the simple laws of probability explain how ludicrous it is to suggest that all of this life abundant around us just sprung out, out of chance and chaos, out of nothing. And he says, you take 10 quarters, put a number on each quarter, put them in a hat, Put a blindfold on, reach in, and the chance of grabbing number one out of those ten, well, that's chance of one in ten. But then you've got to grab first one and then two in order. That chance is one in 100. Well, how about three in a row? One, two, and three by chance. That would be one in 1,000. Well, the odds of pulling all ten out, number one, Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. That would be one in ten billion. And he says, and I'm quoting here on the screen, now realize the simplest living cells consist of strings of 55 amino acids assembled in exact sequence. Thus, the odds of these chemicals emerging by chance from a primordial soup in order 1 through 55 to form a living cell is beyond any reasonable speculation. God is. Our planet is abounding with life. It can only be explained. The existence of a creator, a designer, The psalmist says, as you look around, the fool is said in his heart, there is no God. How foolish that is. Well, God is, verse 1, God. But verse 1 also holds the second most fundamental fact of the universe. 
What's that? God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. God is and God has spoken. Think about this word that we have that we preciously hold in our hands. His revelation unfolded bit by bit, a portion at a time, like the unrolling of a precious scroll scroll before us, 40 different writers, a span of 1,500 years, on three different continents, in three different languages, kings, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, poets, scholars, and with it all, through all those writers, through all those years, at, at all that time, always had the threat, thread of God's love and purpose and his Savior Son unfolding like a scarlet thread through all of the Old Testament. You see, the Bible itself is a miracle. In past times, God spoke through many mouths and methods, but he, look at verse 2, but he has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds. God's revelation is no longer piecemeal, unfolding a little bit at a time here and there, and then brought together what we call the Bible. Today, God has summed up all that he wants to say, and he's put it into one package and rolled the entire divine message and revelation into one person, his son, Jesus Christ, who came to this world and became one of us. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son and through his son. And Jesus is the complete and final word to mankind. If you want to hear what God has to say to the world today, understand his will. Behold his son. Look at Jesus. And Jesus, it was Jesus himself to Nicodemus that shared these words. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The love of Christ just shines through all the pages of scripture and has come to us in his full glory. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is telling these Hebrew Christians. It's really everything that you've known, all the customs, the temple, the sacrifices, everything is all pointing to Jesus. Let me tell you about him. God's son, verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, set down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So let's 
Look at what this author is saying here, and I believe that it's Paul. Behold, as we look at at verse 3, behold, he is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of God's person. So Jesus does not just reflect God's glory. Jesus is the glory of God. Look at your notes if you'd like to take notes. Number one, Jesus is the brightness of God's glory. An example, when you see the moon, you're not seeing its own light. You're just seeing a reflection of the glory of the light of the sun. You're seeing a reflection of the sun. But Jesus was not a reflection of the Father. Jesus was God's glory itself. As he stood on the Mount of Transfiguration with with, uh, Peter, James, and John, and then Moses and Elijah showed up, all of a sudden the flesh that covered Jesus couldn't hold his glory back, and his glory began to shine out. And it was brighter than the sun, the scripture says. He is God's glory. That's why neither sun or moon are going to be in heaven. Jesus is the brightness. He is all the light that we need for our life today and for eternity. Revelation 21 speaks of this, verse 23. The city, the new Jerusalem, had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its glory. To me, that's a precious statement, because in heaven, Jesus will always be the Lamb of God who was slain for my sins and for your sins. And we will recognize the nail prints in his hands and the spear wound in his side. He will always be our precious lamb who gave himself for us. But he'll also be the full glory of who he is, God, very God. And then verse 3 also says something about the express image or exact person of God. The prophets were representatives, but Jesus is God. He's not of similar form. He consists of the very same stuff. Look at your notes, number two. Jesus is the express image of God's person. The very same stuff. Not just a reflection or not just looks like God. When I came this morning and went up to the sound booth and, and uh, got the mic situated and so forth, I was carrying these grapes with me. And Tim, hey Tim, is in the sound booth, and he goes, hey, those look good. Could I have some? I go, well, sure. 
Tim, you want any more? No? How come? Because they're plastic. They look like grapes, but try to eat one of these. They're plastic. They're just not the same stuff. But what about Jesus? He's the same stuff. The Bible says, Psalm 34, 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Jesus is God, very God. The same stuff. And he's not only, as we look at verse 3 some more, He's not only the creator of the universe, but he's also the sustainer. Verse 3 continues, he is upholding all things by the word of his power. Jesus, I would call him, Jesus is the atomic glue. The word of his power holds everything together. And your notes number three about Jesus. He's the creator and sustainer of the universe, the universe that he created, he's holding together. As you look at the, at the mystery of the atom, what keeps this bundle of protons from splitting because uh, the laws of physics teach that like charges repel. It's something is, or someone is stronger. Stronger than atomic energy. Well, who's that? It's Jesus. By the power of his word, he keeps the universe from unraveling. And you bring him closer to home. And I love this. It's the power of his word and his word, the Bible, that keeps us and our lives from unraveling. And he becomes the glue that actually starts bringing us back together and families back together. And the love of Christ is is just incredible to experience what he has for us. He's came to save what he's holding together. That's our Jesus. And then, verse 4, excuse me, number 4 in your notes, Jesus, by himself, in that verse, purged our sins and is now seated on the throne of God. I love this verse. Notice how Jesus purged our sins by himself. He's everything that we need for our sins to be washed away for eternity. He needed no one's help. He blotted out all our sins by himself. He paid the price in full, all alone, and he declared on the cross, it is finished. Paid in full. And now Jesus, as we look more at verse 3, he then sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Look at verse 4 having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Verse 5. 
For to which of the angels did he, God the Father, ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And Paul, the writer, is quoting Psalm 2-7. And again, and this time he's quoting 2 Samuel 7-14, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So the angels that some of the Jewish religion and people were worshiping, the angels hover around God's throne, but Jesus occupies the seat of God's throne. His nature makes him better than prophets. His person and position makes him vastly better than the angels. And your notes number five, Jesus is addressed in the Old Testament scriptures by God the Father as God the Son. And there's two passages that we just looked at from the Old Testament where God the Father addresses God the Son. The doctrine of the Trinity is clearly seen throughout the whole Bible, Old Testament and the New Testament as well. Now look at verse 6. Speaking of Jesus, but when he again brings the firstborn, that would be Jesus, into the world, and quoting from Psalm 97, 7, let all the angels of God worship him. Now this term firstborn, as we went through Colossians, we talked about this, but again, it's a biblical term. It refers to a title of status rather than birth order at all. Exodus 4.22, for instance, calls Jacob the firstborn, even though he was born after Esau. And Jeremiah 31.9, Ephraim is called firstborn over his older brother, Manasseh. Uh, it's a title of status. And the status that God the Father has given, God the Son. And verse 6 says, let all the angels of God worship him. Why? Because he is God, very God. There's an interesting passage in Revelation where an angel is speaking to John the Revelator. And this is what he says. Revelation 22, 8 and 9, and John saying, I, John, fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed these things, these things to me, them to me. But the angel said, no, don't worship me. I'm a servant of God, just like you and your brothers, the prophets, as well as all who obey what is written in this book. Worship only God. But here, God the Father is saying, angels, worship my son. On that first Christmas day, not just the angels who appeared to the shepherds, but all the angels in every corner of the universe, I'm sure they stopped in their tracks and they rose up to worship Jesus that first Christmas day. Your notes number six about Jesus. He is to be worshipped by all the angels of 
of God. And by the way, there will be a day when every knee shall bow before him in worship. And here's the point to these Hebrews. Why worship angels when angels worship Jesus? Angels are servants, messengers. But Jesus, why, he's the hero of God's servants, the angels. And Peter speaks about that as we read from 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 12 in the New Living Translation. This salvation that the whole word of God is talking about and that the book of Hebrews says is now all wrapped up in my son. This salvation through Christ was something even the prophets wanted to know more about when they prophesied about this gracious salvation prepared for you. They wondered what time or situation the spirit of Christ within them was talking about when he told them in advance about Christ's suffering and his great glory afterwards. Verse 12, it's also wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching these things happen. And when they see God the Son, who they know is God, very God, when they see that he became one of us, one of his creation. And not only that, that he did it for the purpose of taking our sins upon himself. And that he became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God as a free gift. They're scratching their heads and they're going, I can't believe that God, God the Son would love his creation that much. They're just blown away by God the Son. And they're watching. And they just can't believe what they see. As the good news about God is spread out, and Jesus touches life after life after life. They're just blown away. They're watching what's going on. They're in this place right now. They can't believe that we are God's kids and that what Jesus has done for us. They're just going, wow, that's so incredible that God would do that. Well, the writer goes on, verse 7, and he says, and of the angels... Who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? That's Psalm 104.4. But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Psalm 45.6. Verse 9. You have loved righteousness and hated Lawlessness, therefore God, your God, therefore God the Father, excuse me, therefore God the Son, your God, God the Father, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Psalm 45, 7. 
Verse 9 tells us, and also look at your notes, number 7, Jesus was anointed, he was doused with the oil of gladness. As I think about this, when Jesus was walking on this earth, that's why the crowds flocked to him. There was a gladness and a joy about him unlike any other human being in history. The authority that he held as he spoke. The love that he shared as he reached out and touched lives and healed and loved. The love that poured out from him even on the cross of Calvary where he cried out to his father, Father, forgive them for they don't even know what they're doing. And he opened the door for Forgiveness for those that even nailed him to the cross. What a savior. Anointed with this oil of gladness. And I believe that to the extent you choose to be sold out to Jesus in this life, his righteousness, his holiness, his wholeness, is the extent that I believe you will begin to experience the happiness and the joy that he wants to pour out. And conversely, to the extent that you go, oh, I don't know if I can really trust Jesus. There's so much pressure to believe this or do that or fall into this or, ah, I don't know if if I can really trust him with my life and the decisions that I'm making. Well, the more you don't trust him, you diminish the happiness and joy that he wants to bring into your life. I believe it's just that simple. And this gives, gives greater understanding to Jesus' words, which I love, John 10.10. 10. And he talks about this world and Satan's work in this world. He says, the thief, Satan, does not come except to steal and kill and destroy But he says, I have come, that they may have life and that they may have it abundantly. Now, as we wrap up this chapter, look at verse 10. And you, Lord, in the beginning, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They're speaking again, Jesus, the creator. But they will perish, verse 11, but you remain. They will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak, verse 12. You will fold them up and they will be changed. But you are the same and your years will not fail. And he's quoting from Psalm 102, 25, 27. Verse 13. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand? That would be on the throne of glory in heaven itself. Till I make your enemies your footstool. Quoting Psalm 110.1. Again, angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation because we put our trust in Jesus.
So angels, they serve before the throne, but Jesus, God, very God, he sits on the throne. That's who we have as our Savior, the one who loved us and gave himself for us, that we might have abundant life no matter what's going on around us, the happiness and joy in this world today, but that's just the beginning. And we can't even imagine what he has prepared for those that he gave himself for, for you and for me in the ages to come. So as we wrap this up, just a reminder, kind of go over your notes. Worship team, you can come on up. Number one, Jesus is the brightness of God's glory. Number two, Jesus is the express image of God's person, not plastic, the same stuff. Number three, Jesus is the creator and sustainer of the universe. We're held together by the power of his word. And that's why we spend time in God's word. It's his word. Four, Jesus by himself purged our sins, and he is now seated on the throne of God, recognized as God the Son by God the Father. Number five, Jesus is addressed in the Old Testament scriptures by God the Father as God the Son, God very God. Number six, Jesus is to be worshipped by all the angels of God. And if the angels worship Jesus as God, how about us? Should we not worship him? And number seven, Jesus was anointed or doused with the oil of gladness. Now, if there was ever an encouragement in Scripture to make the main thing, the main thing, or to keep making the main thing, the main thing. Hebrews chapter 1 is it. Because the main thing is, yeah. You got it? That's what the writer to the Hebrews wants you to begin to understand. And he's going to start explaining the power and the majesty and the glory of Jesus and who he is and what he has done that no one else could do as we go through this book to the Hebrews. 2 Corinthians 3.18 is a very practical application of the truth of who Jesus is. Because Jesus is God, very God. And the literal glory of God himself fills the universe in Jesus. And he invites you and me to pick up his word and to meet with him. And we open our eyes and we begin to behold him and this is the promise that this verse gives us. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as a mirror, as we look to Jesus, the glory of the Lord, 
we are being transformed into his same image from glory to glory, the more time you spend with him from the inside out, he begins to change my heart and your heart to be more like Jesus. It's a miracle that's taking place in our lives from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Let's stand and just worship Jesus with the angels that might be here today. So here's what's so amazing is our God, God the Son, loved us so much that he chose to become one of his creation. He became one of us. And he lived that perfect life in our place, in my place, that I couldn't live. He did that for me and for you, that you can't live. And then he took my sins and he took your sins. And the Bible says he's taken the sins of the whole world upon his shoulders and become sin in our place. Took the penalty for our sin, which is death, that we could be set free. Isn't he something? To be worshipped, to be loved, to be followed. It says, Behold, I stand at the door if anyone hears me knocking. If you haven't put your trust in Jesus yet, why not today? Why not? And all you have to do is just open your heart and trust him as your Savior and Lord. It's a miracle that will take place within you. Jesus said to that old Pharisee, you got to be born again. And I think he got, he got it. It wasn't religion. It was a relationship with his Savior, Jesus, that he gave his life to. And Jesus will do that for you today if you just simply say, Lord Jesus, I believe that you're my Savior. You died on the cross for me. And you rose from the grave. And now I open my heart for you to come in. He promises he will. And if you've been kind of pulled by the world these days and pushed and crunched and so forth to the degree that you say, that's enough. I'm just going to give Jesus everything. Is a degree that he will pour out upon you that oil of gladness and the joy that will follow will overwhelm you. So why not trust him? Lord, as we close our service, we worship you. Not only all the angels worship you, but we worship you and thank you for who you are, what you've done, and what you're doing in our world and in our lives and in this church today. Thank you. We close the service in Jesus' name. Amen.